This morning, we are delighted to have Ken Oak sharing God's word with us. Uh, Ken and Doreen Oak are mission partners of Court Rates. They live in Malaga, Spain, uh, where they've been active in church planting and evangelism for many years. And they, Ken currently serves as the uh, director of field uh, ministries for Avant, which is a global mission organization. So I'm going to pray now uh, as we come to God's word, and I'll pray for Ken and Doreen. Dear God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it offers us truth and wisdom. It can guide us uh, through life's complexities and challenges. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate our circumstances today based on your word, um, that you would teach us how to live and how to live well, that you would fill us with joy um, at the prospect of the harmony and the good life that you have set out for us. I pray for Ken and Doreen. I pray for their family. I pray for their uh, life right now under pandemic circumstances in Spain. Uh, travel is such a big part of Ken's ministry, so he can't do that. So I, I pray for wisdom as he and the Avant team navigate all of that and, and for their family. I pray for Ken now as he brings a message from scripture to us. Would you uh, bless us through him and bless him um, in his sharing of your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, hello to everybody at Courtright in Guelph. Um, normally, Doreen and I get to be there in person at least one or two Sundays during the summer, but obviously with everything going on in the world, that's not possible. But I'm happy to be able to virtually be part of teaching through the Psalms this summer. And so if you grab a Bible, look up Psalm 37. We're going to be not looking at the whole Psalm, but a few verses in the Psalm. But I want to start off by talking about something called sustained inattentional blindness. Okay, this is what psychologists call it when you can't see what's obviously right in front of you. And I know for certain that a lot of women say that men suffer from this, as in, I'm standing in front of my dresser drawer and asking Doreen, where are my socks? And she walks over and picks them up off the top of the pile and then walks away, shaking her head, trying to figure out what's wrong with me. And now I know it's sustained inattentional blindness. This was really highlighted probably three or four summers ago. Um, I'm an avid mushroom picker. Uh, there aren't very many to pick here in southern Spain, but when I'm back in Canada and when we lived in Poland, I love to go out in the woods picking mushrooms. And I know normally when I tell people this, somebody feels the need to point out that some mushrooms are poisonous. And you don't have to write me an email to tell me that. I actually know that. But a few years ago, we were in Canada, we're driving down a gravel road, maybe doing 60 kilometers an hour, something like that. And I stopped the car and I backed up about 30 or 40 meters and I got out and I walked about two meters into the bush and came back with a mushroom that I'd seen as we were driving by. Um, and Doreen had this dumbfounded look on her face and I was expecting her to say, you're amazing. At 60 kilometers an hour, you can spot a mushroom two meters back in the woods. Uh, but her amazement was just a little bit more complex than that. She actually sounded a bit angry when she said this. And what I got was, how is it possible that you can spot a mushroom in the woods while driving 60 kilometers an hour, yet you stand in front of your dresser drawer and can't find your socks? 
and she has to come and find them for me. And she was looking at me like I was a complete loser, but I'm not. I have sustained an attentional blindness, and that's a thing. You can't see what's obviously right in front of you. And this was first um, discovered or talked about back in 2013 when three psychologists did a study. So they took radiologist experts whose job it was to study lung imaging to find cancer no, uh, nodules. And so this is what these people did all day. They were experts. Um, the psychologists write this. They say, we asked 24 radiologists to perform a familiar lung nodule detection task. But a gorilla, 48 times larger than the average nodule, was inserted in the last case. So the last picture they're looking at. There was this big gorilla. 83% of radiologists did not see the gorilla. And eye tracking revealed that the majority of those who had missed the gorilla looked exactly at the location of the gorilla. And on top of that, and this is the part I really love, the ones that did see the gorilla decided they actually hadn't seen the gorilla after talking with the 83% that missed it. They were all suffering from sustained inattentional blindness. And gentlemen, it's a thing. We can no longer be held responsible for not being able, being able to find things. So a few years ago, I'm going to say two years ago, I was reminded just how obvious or just how easy it is to not see the obvious, the thing that's right in front of you. And I was reminded of this in a realm that's slightly more important than not seeing socks or finding mushrooms in the woods or even gorillas on x-rays. Have you ever been in a season of life where everything seems to be going wrong? Like people around you are making decisions that have massive, massive negative impacts on you. You're frustrated with them. You're frustrated with the situation. You're frustrated with your inability to change the situation and make things right. About two years ago, I was there and it seemed to me like in too many spheres of my life, People were doing things that didn't make sense and it was causing people to get hurt. And I was supposed to be helping, but I was powerless to do that. I was literally pulling my hair out. And I don't know if you do this, but my solution to those situations is I often sit down at my computer and I just try to write things out like journaling. Well, mine are more like rants, so not quite like journaling, but I'll sit there and I'll just get it all out. And that's fine up to a point because sometimes I can grasp the situation a little bit better and find something positive that I can do. But when I've ranted about the same situation month after month, it's probably not a healthy practice. And that was the space I was living in. So I was at church and the, the, the teacher was going through um, Philippians and just made a side comment. And something that apparently wasn't even in his notes, because when I went up and asked him, he said it just came into his mind. And he made a side comment about Psalm 37, verse 3. And I sat up in my chair and had one of those rare moments of clarity, thinking, how had I not seen this? It's so obvious. Of course, this is how I'm supposed to respond to this situation. It's a basic, basic, basic truth that can be staring you right in the face, and somehow we just can't see it. And so Psalm 37 verse 3 has four 
things in it that we're going to look at. It basically says this, trust God, do good. It says dwell in the land, which needs a bit of explanation, and cultivate faithfulness. So those four things, number one, trust God. God is in total and complete control, and I should stop acting as if that were not true. Stop responding to situations and to others as if that were not true. The second piece, do good. That's a pretty simple idea. Stop putting my energy into complaining about what's not working and ask myself the question, what's the good that I'm supposed to do right now? Point three, dwell in the land. And I'll explain this a little bit more uh, in a few minutes, but dwell in the land basically means dwell in the place where God has put me and stop stewing about not being in the place that looks exactly like what I want it to look like. And the fourth point in this verse is cultivate faithfulness. I don't have to do those first three points perfectly. I don't have to beat myself up when I don't get it 100% right in my trust of God, um, in growing in my focus on doing good, in growing in my contentment with the place where God has me. And this is mind-blowingly simple. And I thought it would be appropriate with all that 2020 has thrown at us, um, the uncertainty, the anxiety, and unfortunately for some, the, the, the loss. But what do we do when everything around us is going crazy? And so what I'd like to do for us this morning is take a deeper look at these thoughts in Psalm 37 and flesh them out a bit and make them practical and applicable for our day today. So Psalm 37 starts like this. Don't fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers, for they will wither quickly like the grass and fade like the green herb. So it says, don't fret when people are doing evil and it's impacting you. And certainly don't envy them because what's going to happen to them is they're going to wither like the grass. Okay, that's fine, but until then, what do I do in the meantime? Right? The psalm here is specifically addressing fretting over people doing evil. But the truth that's found in the psalm, I think, really applies to fretting over any situation, any difficult situation. So what are you fretting about? I think fretting is that thing we do when we rehash and rehash your difficult situation, which in essence amounts to belief or a trust that if I can keep reviewing the unfairness, right, if I can keep reviewing the injustice of the situation, that will somehow resolve everything. You know, if I can just keep talking about it or journaling about it and define the problem better, and somehow that will make me more in control of the situation. But this actually doesn't work, and I think we all know that. But we still journal about it, and we find people who agree with us and discuss it over and over again, and have the same conversation with three or four or five people reviewing our difficult situation. Um, fret is this odd belief that if I can grasp and articulate the details of the injustice and the problem, and if I can get enough people to validate my conclusion, that that somehow changes the situation, except it doesn't. It just leads to more fretting. It's the opposite of trusting God. Now, I'll, I will say, just as an aside, I'm not saying that every time you share a troubling situation with a friend, this amounts to fretting. 
right? We're supposed to bear each other's burdens, to pray and encourage each other. But when it becomes all-consuming and we're looking for consolation by rehashing our injustice and rewinding that video in your mind and playing it over and over again, and then rewinding it and playing it again, that's probably fretting. So what are you fretting about and what do you replace it with? You replace it with what this verse says, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. So let's take those one by one. Trust in the Lord. That's where God is in total and complete control. And I should stop acting as if that were not true. I should stop responding to situations and to others as if that were not true. Um, I don't think the psalmist was necessarily trying to give us a three steps to trusting God motivational speech, but the verses following verse three actually do give a pretty good outline for that kind of speech. In verse four, it starts off and says, delight yourself in the Lord. Verse five says, commit your way to the Lord. And verse seven says, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. So look at those three commands in verses four, five, and seven. So if it's a three-step program, number one, delight yourself in the Lord, which basically means worship God. Tell him who he is. Remind yourself of who he is and what he's done for you. And this is not a natural response when things um, are going on in our life that, we have to, that we're starting to fret about. But it's a great starting point for getting ourselves back to trusting and away from fretting. Praise God for who he is, and it's like a reminder that, oh yeah, that's what's really going on here. God is still fully in control. So, delight yourself in the Lord. Step two, commit your way to the Lord. That's just a conscious act where you tell God that you want to walk through this in a way that pleases him. And the third one is rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for him. This is the same thought as be still and know that I'm God. Rest, wait, be still. We see those things all through the Psalms and all through the Old Testament. And it sounds easy enough because we're not supposed to do anything, but it's actually really hard not to do anything when everything's going wrong around you and you've started fretting about it. About eight years ago, um, we took our son Travis out of the Spanish school system and enrolled him in another school. And I met with the, the head of the Spanish school to inform him that, of what we were doing and he wished us well. But unfortunately, five months later, we were contacted by the school board and informed that they weren't going to recognize the school that we had put Travis in. And so they considered him to be truant for five months. Um, we were also informed that we were being investigated, therefore, for abandonment because we'd stopped sending our child to school, which actually wasn't true, but according to the way they were defining it, it was. So I tried to contact the head of the Spanish school who had wished us well, but he'd moved to another school. Um, we immediately found a school that they would recognize and enrolled him there, but the wheels were already in motion um, and nobody in the system was going to listen to what we had to say. So we had family services already accusing us of abandonment. And we've got all this stuff going through our head now. Are we going to have to leave Spain? Are we going to have to find a lawyer? Um, what if we get to a judge and, and the judge is so unreasonable 
or is just as unreasonable as the social services people have been. We're asking why is this happening when all we've tried to do is the best thing for our child? And why did God let this happen? Probably one of the most stressful experiences that I've ever gone through. And I was, as I was reading through the Bible, I came along the, across that verse that says, be still and know that I'm God. It's a verse that where God is saying, I'm in control here. You obviously can't affect the situation because as you've seen, you're powerless. The system's in motion. You're going to be face to face with a judge. So just be still and know that I'm God and I'm in control. So I literally forced myself to sit in my living room and look out the window for an hour. No praying, no journaling, no calling people for advice, no reasoning things through and developing a plan for what I needed to do. For me in that moment, trusting God involved me sitting there and literally being still, sitting and doing nothing except recognizing that if God is God, he has this under control. And unless you've done that, uh, you have no idea how hard it is to do. After half an hour, I was in a completely different place though. The anxiety was gone and I knew for certain that God had this under control. Now, I won't leave you hanging and not tell you how the story ended. We met with a judge. She took three minutes talking to Travis and I and then said, I have no idea why you're here and dismissed everything that was uh, brought against us. The point though is I learned something in that of what it means to rest, to wait patiently, to stop rewinding the video in my head and playing it over and over again. And, and as we're resting from fretting, the next thing we do is do good. So trust God and do good. Do good is a simple idea. It's stop putting my energy into complaining about what's not working and ask myself the question, what is the good thing that I can do right now? We're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, that God's prepared in advance good works for us to do. We should just be looking for them. And trusting God and doing good are connected, right? Because when I struggle with trusting, I almost always miss the opportunity to do the good that's right there in front of me. When I struggle with trusting, that leads me to be focused on me I get self-absorbed and either don't see the good that I could be doing for the people around me, or I see it, but it's just I just don't have the energy to do anything about it. So your capacity to do good for those around you is in direct proportion to how much you trust that God is in control. When I know that God's in control and live in the light of that, I don't have to waste my emotional energy trying to manipulate situations to make sure that they're going to work out for me, right? Can you remember a time in your life when you were overwhelmed by worry and anxiety and, it, and at the same time, were keenly aware of, of the needs of the people around you? Well, of course not, it doesn't work that way. So trust in God and do good are intrinsically related. We move on in our four things, trust God, do good, and dwell in the land. And as I th said, this needs a little bit of expl explanation. It basically means dwell in the place where God has put you and stop stewing about not being in a place that looks exactly like you want it to look. Um, when the Old Testament talks about the land, they're, 
it's a thing that goes way back to Genesis 12, where Abraham gets a promise that him, that he and his descendants would become a great nation and dwell in the promised land of Canaan. So this was a centuries-old promise that had to do with God having an ideal place for his people to dwell in the land. And not only was it an, was it an ideal place, that each family was allotted their own portion of land in this system, and the system had it in place that it was ensured that they would always have that, that portion of land. And in an agricultural society, land meant food. Food meant security for the, for the future. So as you read through the Old Testament and see those verses that say, God is my portion, God is my inheritance, that's what it means. That portion is the land. The land means food, food means provision, and I get everything I need. So God has put you in this ideal place, um, and he gives you the land to provide all your needs. Now, ultimately, it's not the place or the land that are my portion. It's God himself. If all I have is God, I have all I need because he's my provider. So this idea for us of to dwell in the place where God has put you, trusting that he is your portion, he is your security. Um, maybe the idea here is stop stewing about not being in the place that looks exactly like you want it to look. Now, granted, sometimes you find your place, find yourself in a place um, that is not where God wants you to dwell. Um, unfortunately, you have people in abusive relationships, in immoral relationships. Um, those are places where God probably wants you to take a step of faith and move into the place where he wants you to dwell. So to be clear, I'm not saying that if you're sitting in an abusive relationship, you should stick it out because that's what God has for you. No, what I'm saying is that many of us tend to be in a great place. And instead of enjoying where God has us, trusting that he's providing all we need, we get obsessive about the things that we don't have. And we believe that... Um, we believe that life maybe owes us something different, which in essence is saying God owes us something different. And it's really the opposite of Paul's advice in Philippians uh, chapter four, where he says, fix your mind on whatever is good and whatever is noble, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. But we find ourselves fixing our minds on whatever is bad, whatever is unjust, whatever is wrong, whatever is twisted. And so we need to shift back and dwell in the, in the good place where God has us. Right? So when everything's going crazy, trust God. Find out what's the good that I'm supposed to do today. Be content dwelling in the place, the good place that God has put you. And the final piece of this, it says, cultivate faithfulness. And I love the word cultivate. It implies that I need to work at it and I need to allow it to grow. I need to grow in my trust of God. I need to grow in my focus on doing good. I need to grow in understanding how to be content in the place where God has put me. Um, there's a bit of consolation in this, in this idea that faith grows, because it means that in moments where I'm not fully trusting, where I miss the opportunity to do the good that's right in front of me, or I feel discontent where with, in the place where God has me dwelling, I don't have to beat myself up because I'm cultivating faithfulness. It's not fully grown yet. I don't have to be perfect at this. I just need to recognize that this is the best way to live 
and to just continue to confess when I'm missing the mark. And so there it is. Uh, when things are out of control, when everything seems to be going wrong, what will I do? Well, I'll choose to trust God. God, you're in total and complete control. And I'll stop acting as if that were not true. And I'll stop responding to situations and to others as if that were not true. And I can do that by worshiping him, committing my way to him, and finding out and learning how to rest in him, to be still and know that he's God. And as we trust, we put ourselves in a place where we can do good. We'll stop putting our energy into complaining about what's not working and ask ourselves the question, what is the good that I'm supposed to do right now? And thirdly, you find a way to dwell in the land, to dwell in the place where God has put you and to stop stewing about not being in a place that looks exactly like you want it to look. And thankfully, we're in a process here. And the fourth point is cultivate faithfulness. Grow in my trust of the Lord. Grow in my focus on doing good. Grow in my contentment about being in the place where God has put me. And again, this is basic, basic, basic stuff. But we're so often blind to it, even though it's staring, at, staring us right in the face.